It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. We did it. We're live. Oh, wait. There's everybody. I'm going to... Five o'clock really just sneaks up on us there. Um, so everybody, if you don't know how this works, please say hello in the chat and then I will say hi to a bunch of you. Um, YouTube is not receiving enough data. That's all Uh you get, YouTube. That's all I'm going to give. Um, let's see. Nope. Pop-up chat still doesn't work. All right. So... Yeah, I'll give people a chance to say more people a chance to say hello. Say hello. Tell us that we exist. Uh, and just to let everybody know, we've got a fairly lengthy interview today, and it's mostly because I was having too much fun talking to the special guest. So I'll try to be wary of the time. We'll need to wrap this up. The main part of the show at about the halfway mark, and then we'll switch over to the actual interview. But it was. Uh, it was just too much fun. <laughs> and the, uh, our guest, the special guest, comes from my island. So mm. we, had, uh, we had stuff to talk about, about being on an island. Yeah, no, we're, I'm not that uh, – we're not that remote. We've got uh, 37 cases in British Columbia for coronavirus as of today. A total wow. of uh, 80 in Canada in total. But we are right on the other side of the Washington border, which is the hot zone. So, Yeah, you guys are probably uh, handling it a little bit better than we are. We are. It looks like we are a little more prepared. Um, we have a lot better testing infrastructure than I think you guys did. If there's one thing that seems to be a big problem, it seems to be the state of testing in, in the U.S. I was listening to some interviews about how um, – how difficult it's been to get the tests and they, and to get everything confirmed and actually the heroics that uh, a team of researchers in Washington went through to get these first cases found. It's kind of amazing when you look into this kind of yeah, en- uh, enraging slash amazing. <laughs> that describes a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now here we go. Hi to Andy Cowley, Bob Muller, Bork Klankar, Brian Yuku, Ian Farkron, Jay Brodeur, uh, James Haney, Nancy Graziano, Paranor, Ryan Schmitz, Scott Bragdon, uh, Tony Flush, Uncle Bill, Druin, David Dunn, and there were some other names popped up there. But uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to this uh, fairly uh, regular episode of the Weekly Space Hangout. This is not a bonus episode. This is not one of the episodes where, in an alternate universe, I went to Japan and then came home. Um, so this episode would have happened in either of the timelines. Yeah. Uh, hello, Frank Tippin. So are you... Uh, do you think that we'll ever be talking about anything that isn't the coronavirus for the next yes. couple of oh God, yes. months? Do you want <laughs> people are losing their freaking minds out here? I yeah. can't believe it. Where are you, Pam? You're in. I am just about twenty, thirty miles west and a bit north of Los Angeles, California. Yeah, right. You're oh. in the. You're in California. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> really. <laughs> wash your damn hands. It's wash, good. <laughs> you wash wash your hands, yeah. 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 Yep. I don't <laughs> I think this is gonna be the this'll be the this will be what we talk about. I I hate to say it, but um <laughs> I I do hope I do hope that the impact is minim is minimal. I would like to be able to you know, all this working from home. It's so tough. I was I was telling all my workers that I'm going to need all, all of the writers, all the team that they're all going to have to work from home. And God, you're draconian. I know, and they all like, uh, we already do, we already have. I'm like, yeah, nothing's changed. All right, let's get into this week's episode. Let me put you all back in your boxes. There we go. 
there's me. And here we go. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Space Hangout for Wednesday, March 11th. 2020. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. This week, we're going to be talking about all of the cool uh, amateur astronomy you can do over the next coming month. Uh, people have modeled the climate on Proxima Centauri B. Uh, we finally got that name for Mars 2020 rover. We placed our bets last week. This week, we talk about the uh, uh, what it actually turned out to be. Uh, Boeing might have some work to do with Starliner. And how did the Milky Way get so warped? Joining me this week on my screen, I've got Dr. Morgan Renberg. Morgan, welcome back. Hey, Fraser. Happy spring. Happy spring. And it is 85 it, degrees uh, <gasps> Fahrenheit here in Fort Worth today. That's, that's almost to the point where you boil water, right? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Stand outside long enough. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. Wow. That's too nice, actually. We're, we're way yeah, older than that it's here. Time to break out the summer weather. Yeah. Summer uh, clothes. Yeah. Yeah. In March. Yeah. That's where you guys really pull ahead. Um, let's see. Uh, we've got uh, Pam Hoffman. Pam. Always nice out here in Southern California. <laughs> yeah, you guys all have the good weather, don't you? Always nice. Yeah. We got Chris Carr. Chris, tell me you've got some cold northern weather like me i wish i could but it was 70 degrees yesterday uh. <laughs> yeah that's pretty good actually all right um all right so we have a uh, a special uh, guest a pre-recorded guest so we're going to be getting that to the end of this episode so we'll be having the news stories before we get into the to that part of it um, but before we go any farther, I just want to remind everybody to, if you like the show, if you want to be part of this incredible community, go to wshcrew.space and you can join the forum behind the scenes. You can join the chat that's down below. You become a um, uh, an executive producer, and that means you get to invite special guests onto the show, whoever you want, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Jim Bridenstine. Whoever you want, invite them to the show. I'm sure they'll show up. Um, so go to wshcrew.space. And, of course, we couldn't do this without uh, all of the incredible work from the team already. All right, Chris, you are on my screen. You wonder how this worked. <laughs> what do you got for us? Is it because I made the last noise? That's exactly, yep. that's exactly right. Yeah, whoever, whoever, see, and this is the minimum switch around. This makes, this makes the show look as professional as humanly possible is the person who I ask who's got the story is the one who's already on my screen. <laughs> All right. Well, so I was, I, was, I was browsing for good stories that caught my interest, uh, and there's this one that I, I think really uh, touched uh, research that I'm familiar with. So th there's been this uh, one of these long-standing mysteries uh, about the Milky Way and about disk galaxies. Is if you were to look at them flat up, look at them edge on, is they aren't necessarily flat because even if you look in the extended regions uh, of these disks, what you find is that in the outer parts, uh, on one on one on one part, it actually curls upwards. The the distributions of the gas and stars. And then on the other end, you have the exact opposite effect of this curling downward. And so what the end result is the is that the Milky Way and other disk and the majority of disk galaxies that, that we observe are warped. And and the fact that that I mean I I guess I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but the fact that we live in a warped galaxy as well with, with the Milky Way. But this is a fairly recent discovery, right? I remember there was like a, a team of Chinese scientists like just a couple of years ago had had figured this out. Well so there have been there have been hints that there might be some warping going on in the galaxy for almost fifty years now. But that was primarily from the the gas detections. And so we were we were more familiar with this warp uh uh, and the distributions of the neutral hydrogen than we were with the stars. It was only recently that our our abilities to uh, get very accurate distances to these far reaches of the galaxy have improved in such a way that we can start saying things more quantifiably about the, about the stellar distribution. And so it wasn't really until Gaia, uh, which was this marvelous uh, piece of machinery uh, that has given us the the accurate positions and velocities of over a billion stars 
in the Milky Way that that the the that we've actually been able to fully probe the structure uh, of the Milky Way disk. And so that's why galactic astronomy right now is really in a time of renaissance. Yeah, thanks to Gaia, as like so many things have so many discoveries just recently, like last week, we were talking about merging neutron stars into ultramassive neutron stars, another thing Mm -hmm. that looks has been turned up by by Gaia. And it's funny, every time I look through uh, archive, I just see a couple of stories based on Gaia data. And we're only still halfway through Gaia's run. I mean, it, just, just wait for all the planets, all of that. So I'm, I'm sort of imagining the, the, the Milky Way. And so the warp, it's kind of like, like one side of the galaxy is kind of tweaked up, like the, like the back of a skateboard. And then the other part of the galaxy is tweaked down, like the, I don't know, upside down skateboard. Um, this analogy is falling apart. Now, is this whole thing kind of rotating together or is it more like the galactic arms where you've got this pressure wave that's, that's moving around in the galaxy? So that's an excellent question. And that was exactly the aim of, of this new paper, which was, which was trying to model the, the rate of precession of the warp of the galaxy. And so just like how the, the orbit of the Earth sort of processes around, around its axis, it's believed, or at least it's a, it's a possibility that this could also be the case with the warp of the galaxy. And so they considered a number of different models. Uh, they considered a static warp, and so a warp that didn't change uh, throughout time. It's sort of like a, a, a remnant of our formation history, or a warp that is more transient uh, in nature, uh, which... Could, which could be induced by a extragalactic collision that may be uh, rippling through the, the 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 distribution of stars, thus giving us uh, something that would look like uh, uh, a warped disk. You know, Chris, when I was in school, I remember actually drawing out like a model of the Milky Way galaxy, and we had this bulge in the middle, and then mm-hmm. of course it went along but we thought it was flat at that point i mean this was years ago do we still see the bulge or has that been confirmed less you know significant or what's the deal with that now the bulge yeah like the bulge like in the middle of the the milky way galaxy right well gaia has also given us uh i I guess it, it goes back to what i was saying how gaia has given us so much information about the substructure of the milky way that, that it does seem like the Milky Way does have like a pretty uh, preeminent bulge. Okay. Uh, and so if you're going to, if you're looking at the bulge edge on, what you actually see is like a diffuse X. Right. And, oh, no kidding. Yeah. And so it's called the, uh, the, uh, the boxy peanut bulge. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so what caused it? What's caused so, the, the warp in the disc? Okay. And so, Back to what I back to what I, what I was saying about the different models about where the warp came from. If it's like a a uh, a, a static feature or a transient feature, this can tell you about the the uh, where the warp came from. And so there have been many ideas about where the warp may have came from. Some ideas talking about like some uh, this may have something to do with the dark matter distribution about around the galaxy and uh, about. Uh, a clumpiness in the dark matter substructure that may be pulling on one edge of the galaxy more than so on another. Mm-hmm. And so that would be more consistent with a, uh, with a stable warp, a warp that's uh, non-changing, while something akin to uh, a collision is more consistent with a transient warp. And, what, and the results of this paper is, uh, is that their model is more consistent with a warp that is transient in nature and not one that is static. In other words, a collision. Indicating that there that there must have been some collision, uh, some uh, uh, occurring in the outer disk of the of the Milky Way at some point of the last one billion years, and and so how this is working? If you have the galaxy like this, and if you have uh, an impact uh, happening in the outer parts, so what happens is the entire disk is going to actually goes down, not just the part that's impacted, but the part that's impacted goes down further than the part that wasn't. And so if you're in the galaxy, it would, it would give you the, uh, the perception that there's a warp in the disk. Right. And, and so, I mean, um, 
Nancy is asking this question. It's very similar in the in the chat. Have we noticed similar warping in other spiral galaxies, or is this unique to the Milky Way? So do, do we see this kind of structure all over the place? Right. So the Milky Way is the only is the only galaxy where we can have the in depth uh, like uh, three dimensional motions of all the stars. Uh, and so uh, from the stellar distribution, it's hard to find. But in the gas distribution we have found a number of warps uh, in other disk galaxies. And if my memory serves me correct, the majority of disk galaxies we do see have some indication right. of a warp. And so I guess, you know, I sort of think about this idea of, like, we know that Andromeda is on its way to us, or we're on its way to Andromeda, and eventually we're going to merge, and then M33 is going to join the pack, and all of these are all going to mash together into one gigantic um, galaxy, but like an elliptical galaxy, and it's not going to have any structure. And so, like, can the Milky Way handle, like, just a certain number of these smaller uh, you know, gobbling up of smaller galaxies until it really starts to lose its structure? Right. And so the in our theories of galaxy like evolution, uh, like the number of these major mergers uh, occurring in the course of the galaxy's life. So what we're seeing with the Milky Way and the Andromeda galaxy right now is actually getting rarer and rarer as the universe ages. Uh, and this has to do with our theories of like, how structure forms, uh, small things, build bigger things. And so the early universe was, was a much more turbulent time of these of these of these approaches happening more often and so the milky way uh, over the last one billion years or so has actually been relatively quiet and this and i have to mention this because the, this is this is where the connection with my research uh, uh is very strong so in my work we we have a, a simulation uh, of the of a milky way disk combined with a infalling satellite and how it impacts the disk and and we've known for quite a while that the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy may have may have been that impactor huh. of the disk within the last one billion years. And so our simulation is trying to recreate that event. And a collaborator of ours has has uh, actually through the through the course of his work was able to replicate a warp in the disk galaxy of the simulation using a Sagittarius analog. So uh, a dwarf galaxy like Sagittarius punched through the Milky Way, but wasn't completely torn apart yet. Exactly. It's about one-tenth the mass of the Milky Way. So what happens is that they 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 go on these orbits, they punch the disk, and then they go through, then they go through again, and again, and again, and again. And so uh, they get to a point where they just... So just get uh, emaciated into like, right. the greater form of the disk. That's can amazing. See, can we see yeah. that other galaxy anywhere? Yeah, so um, we can actually see Sagittarius now because it's believed that it it very recently punched the disk. And so we there, um, uh, you can actually Google the uh, Sagittarius stream, which is just like the stream of stars that, that are sort of uh, falling away from that that dwarf galaxy. So if this is the disk, the Sagittarius is right here, and you see these streams of stars uh, sort of connecting the two. It's caught in the gravity of the bigger galaxy, right? Yeah, right. because wow. Yeah, because Sagittarius is being torn apart by the, right. by the tidal forces. And right. so the, the streams are just the, the remnants wow. uh, of that past uh, Super cool. collision. Morgan. Speaking yes. of uh, speaking of uh, planets, yeah, I was really interested by a piece of work that came out this week that tried to take climate models developed here on Earth and apply them to exoplanets. And this is really kind of interesting and exciting because climate models are something we've very developed and tested rigorously here on Earth, and they can hopefully help us answer questions somewhere where we really know nothing. Uh, we, you know, we have no idea what any exoplanet really looks like, how its atmosphere behaves, what the configuration of its surface is. And if we can use these models that we've in some way been able to validate with like the one known test case, uh, we might be able to infer a little bit about what's happening elsewhere. 
And so what they did is they took one of these legacy climate models and they started to modify it for use for other planets. And this actually turned out to be like the heaviest lift of the whole process because these are models that have been developed for, for decades. They're mostly written in Fortran. And they're over, you know, since the 1970s, as these things have been built up, tons of like little bits have wormed their way in that just make these implicit assumptions about the Earth. Like you might hard code in uh, the value for gravity, for example, because, you know, in 1970, there are no other planets. Uh, You're not uh, concerned about the fact that you might one day apply this to uh, another star. So they had to go through and they had to sort of pull out all of these places where implicit assumptions about Earth had been baked in and make those adjustable parameters. Uh, And so then they took that and they applied it to Proxima Centauri B, which is the closest exoplanet to Earth. Uh, And they ran basically four different configurations of the model. And, And they did this because, like I said before, we really know nothing about what these planets look like. And so they did two... Uh, versions of the model uh, and if you have the web page up Fraser, yeah. there's some amazing animations uh, yeah. that you might want to play uh, they did two versions of the model uh, assuming basically a water world where you had a totally a water liquid surface and they did two versions of the model where they assumed that there was land uh, and of course we have no idea what that land might be so they just superimposed earth's continents on uh, proxima centauri b because that's as good a guess as any other random configuration. Uh, And one of the important things to know is that this planet is tidally locked. And so the same part of the planet faces the star Proxima Centauri all the way through the the orbit. And so they ran those two ocean models, one assuming there was no circulation at all. It was just like static water and one where there was circulation happening. And then they ran two models with the land, one where the Pacific Ocean, effectively, was pointing towards Proxima Centauri, and one where uh, Africa was pointing towards uh, the planet. And they let these things evolve forward, and they looked effectively at the temperature of what they were seeing. And, and what they found, I would say, is, is not encouraging, uh, because they basically found that the basically any small changes that you make to the model had dramatic results on what you saw. And so we saw everything from a planet that was essentially covered in ice with only the sort of subsolar part uh, being liquid to a planet that was mostly uh, liquid ocean uh, to a planet that had most of the, the land under ice to a planet that had most of the land not under ice. Uh, and so, of course, you know, only one of these or, or none of them can can be right. And the fact that, you know, making rotations of like where the continents are would be the difference between mostly an ice planet and mostly not an ice planet. <laughs> right. Means that we basically this is a failure. Like we can't tell we can't really infer properties uh, of exoplanets based on even these very sophisticated supercomputer models because there's just too many unknowns. And and maybe that's not surprising. But it's disappointing that at least with the generation of models we have now and the remarkably little information we have about what these surfaces look like, you kind of just got to throw your hands up and, and say, right. oh, well. Well, the, the thing that's, that's, that's interesting, I think up until this point, it was generally assumed that if you have a tidally locked planet with one side always facing the, the star – then you would end up with one side being boiling, uninhabitable, and the other side being f- completely covered in ice, utterly frozen. And and I think what these models do show is that energy is transferred, that warmth is transferred to the backside of the planet, and cooling is brought around to the front side of the planet. And so you you can end up with situations where it is habitable. You just don't know which one's you're looking at which right? ones or where or yeah. why yeah or, yeah or it depends uh, on yeah. depends on ocean depth depends on currents depends on con- continent size location how big are the seas on and on and on and on and on so yeah, I mean, if, could they even start from scratch knowing about just the planet out there i mean it's so far away that's that's what four four light years away yeah 
Right. So all they could really fill in are the kind of basic physical parameters. We know the solar output of uh, Proxima Centauri. Right. We know the difference between them. Uh, we know the size of Proxima Centauri. Uh, in the future, uh, with a telescope like James Webb, we might be able to input some more specific information about the atmosphere. And that could prove to be a pretty important constraint on uh, these models. For example, if we knew that there were likely to be a lot of clouds or not a lot of clouds, that would remove a whole swath of uh, parameter space for in investigation. Uh, but right now, as with most uh, planets that are transit planets, we know these like bulk parameters. What's the mean density? What's the mean size? May maybe does it have an atmosphere or not, but very little about what that atmosphere is composed of. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if, they're, if they're trying to learn uh, about the atmosphere, uh, like from, like, like would it, like would they have the, like would future telescopes have the like resolution to, to do spectroscopy? Uh, yeah. So the, um, you know, the 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 ones that are in the works right now is uh, there's a, there's a telescope a telescope coming out called Ariel, which is going to be launching in 2028 from the European Space Agency, and mm -hmm. they're going to have the ability to do spectroscopy on the atmospheres of many exoplanets. James Webb will be able to do it in specific cases, depending on on the star, depending on whether it sort of works well into the kinds of things that it's designed to observe. Uh, those are your two main machines. And then a bunch mm -hmm. of the ground-based telescopes, this next generation of super telescopes, um, like especially the extremely large telescope, which is coming from the European Southern Observatory, that's going to have the ability to directly observe exoplanets. So we are, you know, obviously James Webb is going to launch like next year. So, <laughs> you know, that one will, will put us in the ballpark uh, within a couple of years. And, well, and you have to imagine that, Proxima Centauri is going to be a high priority yeah. target because obviously of how close it is. And mm -hmm. so in some ways we will know as much or more about Proxima Centauri B as virtually any other yeah. uh, exoplanet. And, and so it makes sense why this team decided to choose that as their, as their modeling target, because we'll, people will keep coming back to it with every new yeah. gizmo and finding out what happens. Uh, there was this quote that Jim Green from NASA said uh, about six months ago where he said, we're not prepared to find aliens. And, and it was not that, you know, like we're not emotionally equipped to handle the discovery of aliens. It's that literally the technology, the, 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 the telescopes, the instruments – are not there yet to be able to really properly get to the bottom of some of these these questions yet. So it's probably going to be that next generation. It's going to be the Louvoirs. It's going to be Habex. And that you're looking in the 2030s for these instruments to actually come online. Gosh, it's so exciting, isn't it? I love being alive at this point in time. It's it it's incredible to me that we have a better chance now to find evidence of of some kind of alien life now than you know than ever that it, as you said it could be within our lifetime we are we could be a couple of decades yep. away from having tentative evidence that there is life across the universe bacteria well yeah yeah exactly bacteria <laughs> life so thanks morgan um all right, Pam, you're on my screen. What do you got for us? Awesome. So, uh, as you know, I like to talk to you about stuff you can do from right where you are, usually. And there's a really interesting conjunction coming up. It's Wednesday, March the 18th. Mars and Jupiter, Saturn, Pluto, and the Moon will all be visually close together, but really they're far apart. And it's going to be before sunrise in the east, so you um, want to be an early bird or get up early and look for the moon. You can see visually with your naked eye the moon, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Uh, but you're probably going to want a telescope to see Pluto. <laughs> it's there too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is there. But And, and the beauty of that is that, uh, you know, with, when we have any kind of conjunction like this with a, a brighter object, it's much easier to find Pluto in the night sky uh, because they're around there. So the moon is 24 days old. It's just past the la last quarter. It'll appear as crescent moon, which can be quite beautiful 
you know, uh, alongside the planets there. Uh, and there's lots more coming up this year. In fact, for the time period of the 18th, I'm looking at my list here, through the 24th, and that goes uh, all the way to the new moon. The, the, the 24th, the, the moon is, in fact, new. We've got uh, that conjunction. Uh, of course, the equinox is on the 19th. Mars and Jupiter will be in conjunction, Mercury and the moon. So it's going to be moving around. All those different things will be moving a little bit. Um, and I think probably the best day to find Pluto, actually, is when Mars is in conjunction with Pluto itself, and that's the 23rd of March. Um, and then new moon uh, on the equator. Mercury yeah, at yeah. the greatest western elongation. And when they say western, you look in the east, oddly enough. And when Venus is in the greatest eastern elongation, that same very, that very same day, you're going to want to look in the west for right. that. So really exciting times. It's funny. I've been getting so many comments on I, I did an old video it's about two years ago about you know what's that bright star in the sky it's not a star it's venus right and all the people are popping out of the woodwork every nine months they pop out of the woodwork again and they're convinced that it's you know planet x or nibiru or whatever and i'm like nope uh nope it's venus again just twinkle right, twinkle little planet yeah right on schedule <laughs> But this is, I mean, it's beautiful. Like, I don't know if you look at it, like, I, I went and saw Venus last night, and it was just incredible how bright oh, it is right now. you can see it from your location. That's great. Yeah, yeah. No, I can yeah. see Venus. I can't see Mercury. Mercury is is always uh, under the mountains. Right. And I've been able to see it before. The time changed here uh, about 530, and it's you've still got the sunset. But you've still got some of that glow from from the sun still, and you can just a little dot. That's Venus. It's very cool. It's like I try to find it as early as possible anytime I have a yeah. chance to to go out and look. So, That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait. Uh, I mean, this uh, the thing that I'm looking forward to most this year is the conjunction later on in the year, the Saturn and uh-huh. Jupiter. Um, yeah. They're going to be just right next to each other. It's going to be in the same telescope field of view. I think this will be pretty exciting, too. And, you know, I list all kinds of events on my website. Uh, I'll go ahead and put a link in uh, the comments below, but uh, spacer.pamhoffman.com and look at Everyday Spacer Meetups. Scroll down. I've currently got events for eight cities. Okay. So if you move or travel to one of our cities, you'll have a cool list of things to do right off the bat. Right on. Um, but like I said, I'll add a link to that as well in the comments below. Thanks uh, so much, Fraser. Morgan, let's talk about uh, let's talk about Starliner. Well, it ain't going great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we've been talking about uh, Starliner for a, f- a few months now, kind of tracking the saga one step at a time, and and we've got one of the the most important steps so far, uh, which is sort of the official NASA determination of uh, what went wrong. So they've been conducting uh, this long investigation, and some particular small pieces are still being investigated, but the sort of big conclusion uh, is that NASA declared this what's called a, a close call. And that's the that sounds awfully uh, sort of laissez-faire, but that's actually the second most uh, serious NASA designation behind loss of mission, which that's is you know, what would have happened if it pancaked into um, the ground or something like this. And this means that they were very close and had a legitimate possibility of uh, having you know like one adverse event would have created a loss of mission. And so that's, you know, sort of scary for for NASA. And so they've gone through and they've identified uh, 61 specific things that they're going to require Boeing to uh, address before they sort of take the next steps. And they're not even talking yet about what whether or not they're going to require Boeing to fly uh, another test flight. It seems almost impossible that they would not. Um, but they're not even going to have that conversation until these 61 things uh, are addressed. And, and of, in addition to that, 45 recommendations were made uh, for how they could improve their software testing process since all of these issues cropped up in software. And basically it boils down to actually test your software. Uh, it turned out that there were huge swaths of uh, the, the mission that they never really even tested, 
sort of standard operating procedure for something like this is to hook up the uh, spacecraft to external power and run the entire mission from the moment of liftoff until the moment of splashdown uh, as if it was happening. So feed the, the computer all of the inputs you would expect the computer to, to experience and see what happens. And if your computer's working correctly, it should send back to you all of the actions that are supposed to be taken at the right steps. And if they had done that, they would have discovered these problems because they actually did that testing for the first part, um, basically the part that involved the launch. But they uh, tur- they stopped that testing something like a minute <laughs> before the point where the first of these faults would have occurred. Mm. And, and so that's not great. Yeah. And um, and so certainly they will be required to perform a complete end-to-end uh, simulation with the launch hardware. Uh, but there's all these bigger questions about the safety culture at Boeing and how how could this have been allowed to happen? You know, one of Boeing's big talking points for why they should be selected for uh, commercial crew and in some cases why they should be the only person selected was because of their decades of space exploration experience, building space hardware, managing these human rated systems going all the way back to the space race era. And to have that legacy and then to make these sort of simple oversights suggests there's a deeper problem. And here's the the young upstart, or I guess, you know, SpaceX looking like they're the experienced veterans at this task. They might be. Because Boeing got out of this business ages ago. I used to work on the Delta program and and talk about crazy. They they had an explosion. We've had an anomaly. There's been an anomaly. Very deadpan, but yeah. Yeah. They've been out of the business for a while. So all this trouble with Starliner uh, is against the backdrop of SpaceX preparing for the first crewed launch of Crew Dragon in May. And so we're steadily moving towards... Uh, seeing the successful fulfillment of of the commercial crew c- contract by SpaceX, and at the same time, we're still trying to sort out, you know, can Boeing even sort of complete the steps in the right order? Yeah. Much less, can they do them right or do them well? I, I think it was it was you a couple of uh, like a month ago or so that we were talking about how clever this multi. Um, multi-company provider idea was and how well this has actually worked out for NASA in the long run and that the person, the architect of this idea has now moved over to SpaceX. Yeah, it's worth uh, thinking about what might have happened or what might be happening if there were, say, two providers for SLS or, you know, two providers for James Webb. Now, those programs come at a substantially higher cost to to the government but part of that is because with one provider you're stuck on this treadmill of endless slips and endless yep. budget overruns and yeah. you know we got another terrible report from the inspector general this week about the status of SLS and it's likely to go billions more over budget just from what NASA said last year the budget would be i kind of think that if NASA has their head screwed on right, that this commercial crew model will be the model moving forward for subsequent programs. It's already the plan. Seeing that a little bit for Artemis. Yeah. Even beyond Artemis, the idea of making companies buy in themselves, you know, Boeing and SpaceX had to put up their own money to develop uh, this technology and saying, well, if you, if you, you ain't first, you may be no one. Uh, will get them to actually get the project yeah. going and to do it right. Yeah, totally. All right, we're running out of time. Thanks, Morgan. Um, before we go, I just want to uh, give everyone an update. Last week, we talked about the possible names for the different Mars rovers. The one that was chosen was Perseverance, which is fine, I guess. Just hard to Good spell. Your spell checker, yeah. Yeah, and so so I've been practicing already. Per, P-E-R, sever. Cut and then ants, A N C E. And so now I've 
It, it actually, it's been easier to get into my head than Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Oh, I still can't spell reconnaissance. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's in English, a wonderful language. MRO. It's spelled MRO. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's MRO. No. All right, Pam, you're on my screen. Uh, so where can people find out more? Itty bitty book. I have worked on this and created 15 simple ways to get involved. That's on Amazon now. I have a class. Next one is starting on the 31st, of course, Southern California. And I am putting together a star party once a month, unless it rains or there's fire. Or coronavirus. Uh, I don't think that's going to bother us that much. We'll okay. see. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but I do have meetups in various cities, Thousand Oaks, Boston, Providence, Cleveland, Great. Los Angeles, Phoenix, and events on my website. Yeah. So All right. Remain. Chris, Thanks. what are you working on and where can people go to find out more? Um. Uh, just anything to do with galaxies right now. But uh, but if you want to learn more or, or follow me, uh, I also do a lot of outreach around the city of New York. You can follow me at the Real C Car on Twitter. Excellent. Morgan? MorganRenberg.com is the website. You've got one week left to see my space exhibit launch pad at the Fort Worth Museum of Science and History. And then I will disappear off the face of the Earth for a month as we rush to get our next exhibit, Project Planet, installed all about the science of climate change and what we should do about it. I thought you were going to say honeymoon. <laughs> yeah. No time for that. Got it. <laughs> all right. And, of course, I've got a new episode dropping in a couple of days all about water worlds on my channel. So uh, Universe Today on, on all the things. Now, everyone stick around. Uh, we've got our special guest interview that I'm going to run now. But uh, the rest of my co-hosts are now free to, uh, to head out. So I'm going to give them a chance to all wave goodbye. Um, Stay healthy. All right. Bye. Thanks, Watch guys. <laughs> we'll see you in various upcoming weeks. Take care. Bye-bye. No matter what happens, the uh, Weekly Space Hangout will be able to continue on. Right on. All right. All right. Let's get on with the interview. Bye. Weekly Space Hangout is uh, Professor John Willis from the University of Victoria, which is on my island. John, welcome to the Weekly Space Hangout. Thanks for having me, Fraser. Uh, for people who may may or may not know, of course, I live on Vancouver Island. I live about halfway up Vancouver Island. And, John, you're down in Victoria. Yeah, I'm down at the bottom. <laughs> That's right. Um, it's a big island, though. So, oh, you yeah. Know, you know, yeah. I'm in the sunny half. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I'm on the, <laughs> I'm on the rainy half. Um, but uh, so who are you and what do you do? Okay, well, I'm an associate professor of astronomy at the University of Victoria, and so that means my job, well, it says in my job description, is essentially I teach courses to undergraduates on all aspects of astronomy. I do a lot of research on very wide topics. We'll probably end up talking today about cosmology and astrobiology, and I do an awful lot of outreach. I enjoy telling people of all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of stories about the universe. Now, there was an article that you had written for The Conversation that kind of caught, I know, caught Nancy's attention. And it's something that had made the rounds a little bit. And this is talking about an interesting galaxy cluster that was unusually um, bright early on, active. I get, yeah, so the... Essentially, what I, the, the way I picture it for people is to say, I mean, some people have heard the analogy that a galaxy is like a city of stars, right? And we're in the sun. We're just one house in that city. Well, what I study are clusters of galaxies. And in that, using that same analogy, I like to tell people that a cluster of galaxies is like a city of galaxies, okay? And then people say they can imagine that in their head. And then I'd say, imagine you're, if you're an archaeologist, though. Wouldn't it be amazing if you had a telescope that you could look through and you could see the world's first cities? You could see, let's say, Jericho, or yeah. you could see Ur, something like that. And you could peer through the telescope, right, and you can see people going about their daily life, let's say, 7,000 years ago. Well, in astronomy, because we use real telescopes and because of the finite speed of light, when I observe a galaxy cluster at great distance, and when I talk about great distance, the one I wrote about, the light has taken, let's say, 10.4 billion years, <laughs> most of the history of the universe, to get from where it started to us. So when I look through my telescope, I'm looking back at this city of galaxies as it looked 10.4 billion years in the past. 
And getting to the heart of what you mentioned, what I found interesting and a few other people found interesting is this galaxy cluster. It's a bit like looking back at the city and saying, gee, that looks pretty modern. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty built up. And it looks, you know, the daily life of the people there is pretty sophisticated. So what that means in analogy is this galaxy cluster is massive. And if you were to take it from where it is 10.4 billion light years away and put it in the modern day universe, it wouldn't look out of place, right? The galaxies are as evolved as we see locally. The giant halo of X-ray emitting gas is just as mature as we see in the local universe. And so when I see that, that tells me, hmm, the universe must be doing things quickly and probably quicker than we had anticipated in the years before we even saw it. Because let's do the maths, right? The universe is 13.8 billion years, right? So when I look at this galaxy cluster, it's 10.4 billion years ago. So the age of the universe at the time, do your maths, everyone, 3.4 billion years, right? Now, what I wrote this paper on was essentially using a technique using the colors of the galaxies observed with the Hubble Space Telescope to work out how old are the stars when I'm looking at them. And it turns out, there's a, you know, it's models, there's some range of freedom there. It turns out they might be as old as 3 billion years old. So then you do the next bit of math. So if the universe is 3.4 billion years old, that means these galaxies started forming their stars 400 million years after the Big Bang. Right. Now, that's pretty early, right? Yeah. And it's wonderful doing this kind of science because once you peel one layer of the onion, there's another fresh, you know, unknown layer of the onion further down. So what's the, the, the question we're left with is, well, if I go back to 400 million years after the Big Bang, that galaxy cluster wouldn't exist as I see it in those images. It would be much more spread out. Gravity would not have brought it together into the thing I see when I see it. And then it leaves you with another question. How did all of those galaxies that when I look at them are concentrated in a small patch of sky, but then distant past, they'd have been spread out all over. How did they know to start forming their stars at the same time? Right. Who told them? Who passed the message between them? Right. right? And so what I love about this, it's, it's been a wonderful experience observing this cluster, especially with HST. It is as good as the media will ever tell you it is. It's absolutely pristine images. But then it revealed another level of a puzzle behind there. And that, and that was kind of cool. It's um, been a good process. And, and I, I mean, the impression that I get from sort of doing the journalistic side of this is that astronomers – are continuously surprised by how mature the early universe was, how quickly it did get itself organized, how quickly it brought these these stars together. Because it's not just a matter of of having a bunch of stars. Like you've got to have multiple generations of stars to create some of these more complex early structures. So, I mean, is this is this a theme that is that is more and more surprising to you as an astronomer, just how how far along it already was? And as you said, right, how did it know? Like, they, obviously, the, the galaxies had to talk to each other somehow to know, yeah. to, to com, you know, begin combining to Voltron. So one thing I have learned is don't ever be surprised at the universe, <laughs> right? Yeah. Be amazed and full of wonder, but it will always keep a capacity for surprise, especially when you do discovery-led observational science, right? You're looking in new places with new techniques. You are going to find new things, and that's what it's all about. What I would say, um, and I would agree with you, yes, you know, the, the universe is teaching us, right? So what that means is if I was to make a computer simulation of, you know, the universe, how stars form, how gravity works, this kind of thing. I would put my best ideas in, and it wouldn't be wrong, but it would be inaccurate, right? And nature is teaching us how to tweak it now. They're saying, you're not forming the stars fast enough. Right. You're not bringing them together. You must have got some bit of physics inaccurate in there. And that tells, it doesn't tell us what bit it is, and that gives too much of the game away, but it tells us where we've got to go and look, right? And so that's, so... The other thing one has to be careful of is when you're looking at a galaxy cluster, it's not the average universe, right? This is, I'm looking at what is probably one of the most dense, the most advanced part of the universe, parts of the universe at this epoch I'm looking at at 10.4 billion years ago, right? And so you always have to be 
uh, have you heard of um, the black sheep problem? With sure. Yeah. 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 The, yeah, or the black, black, sheep? black swan. Yeah. But it, basically, you see a black sheep and you say, all sheep are black. Right. And then you see, you know, another sheep uh, that's, that's white and you say, mm, 50% of sheep are black. <laughs> or maybe all sheep are black on one side and I'm not, maybe not seeing the right side of this. <laughs> Right? Yeah. So yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a trap you can fall into of saying, ah, oh, I've observed this wonderful object that I'm very passionate about. It must represent the universe as a whole. And yeah. the answer is no. Okay. This is probably quite an extreme part of the universe, but that's okay. It's yeah. still fine to learn about the extremal limits of the universe. And this is basically telling us about. So we think our, our basic physical idea is that density drives evolution in the universe. Density drives progress. The denser you are, the greater is going to be the force of gravity, the more collisions are going to happen between subclumps, and you're going to build visible structures faster. So what we're probably learning is this galaxy cluster is always has been one of the densest parts of the universe. And you just have to follow that back in time and you know and, and that's the story we're telling. Yeah. Um and I think that you know, this is going to lead on to the second part of the of the conversation, because essentially, you know, as we as we know that here on Earth, the Earth is 4.6 billion years old. The universe has been around for almost 14 billion years. We are late to the party. We missed the fun. Um, and in terms of the age of the universe itself and yet life, the moment it could formed here on Earth. And so here we are now starting to really start to look out there farther out into the universe, wondering where the life is. And the more mature, the more advanced, the more cohesive and together the universe was, the more complex elements that had already been formed, the more this puzzle deepens, which is back to the where is everybody? Right. Right. I mean, it's an interesting conjecture. Of course, you know, our ability to search for life, even on exoplanets, extends out within a tiny fraction of the size of the Milky Way. So when we are searching for life in the universe, I often have to bring people, not quite back down to Earth, <laughs> but back down to the Milky Way. I actually, I show them what, a wonderful image of the Hubble Deep Field. Galaxies, galaxies everywhere, stretching off to you know, almost infinity. And then I pick one particular galaxy and I zoom in on it and I say, pretend that's the Milky Way. And then I draw a tiny little circle around one outer spiral arm that covers a tiny fraction of that Milky Way and say, that's where we're capable of looking, right? But having said that, you're right. What a wonderful idea to think about, to look at these. So we see these galaxies in this cluster 10.4 billion years ago, right? So there are stars there, profusions of stars, right? And some of those stars are 3 billion years old, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And so, yeah, you, you can do the maths. You can say, okay, Earliest evidence of life on Earth arose one billion years after the formation of the solar system. So does that mean life might have been going in that galaxy cluster for two billion years, right? Yeah. Which would it, would, it would put us kind of in what some biologists call the boring billion, <laughs> right? We've, we've got photosynthesis, but we haven't got eukaryotic organisms yet, right? So we're basically still completely right. microbial, right? Um, but, no, it's, it's a wonderful thought, because one thing I started this article in the conversation with was asking the reader to imagine looking out at the night sky from a planet going around a star in a galaxy in a galaxy cluster, right? Because on a dark night, if you're in a wonderful spot and you've got good eyes, you might see Andromeda, right? And if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, you'll see the large and the small Magellanic clouds. But if you lived in a galaxy cluster and were reasonably dark adapted, you might see 40 galaxies, right? As bright or brighter than Andromeda in the night sky. It would, it would really be like living in a planetarium, yeah, right? Amazing. So, yeah, there's, there's wonderful imaginative exercises when you do this. I, I think of the, the version of that, but you're living inside a globular cluster um, and then yes. just seeing, you know, bright betel juices in all directions and just what that, yeah. what, what that, would, that would involve. So, so then, I mean... There's, I mean, there are a couple of interesting ideas to search for potential, like say, type three civilizations, which have you know used up, have closed all their stars into dice oh, yeah. and then they're radiating infrared radiation, and you could see entire galaxies. But yeah, you know, not a lot of astrobiologists are are, are searching, although some surveys have been done. But the you know the search for 
for some kind of evidence for biosignatures is a lot closer to home, even in our solar system, even potentially here on on Earth in some of the more extreme environments. There's some really fascinating astrobiology work that's going on even just even on our planet. So to sort of set aside your galaxy, you know, astronomy hat and sort of put on your yeah, and then put on your your more your astrobiology side of things. How do you feel about kind of the state of of astrobiology so far? What is really exciting you about where we're at right now? Well, because I've been teaching astrobiology to undergraduates, must be almost a decade now, and uh, I wrote. Uh, a book about it that basically grew out of those experiences with the undergraduates. And that's then allowed me to go off and do various adventures. So I've, I've been to visit the oldest fossils on Earth, and I've been to the labs where we investigate them. You know, I've been to the, the depths of the oceans with the exploration oh, vessel. Wow. Right? And I've operated ROVs at depth and visited deep ocean hydrothermal vents. Yeah. And so the first thing you learn as an astrobiologist is how amazing earth is right but then you know i think where we are existing now so what do we do first of all first of all we explored the planets and moons of the solar system right and nasa made a really good you know bookending of that in that what was it 1967 you have the first space probe to mars i believe it was the first one they did in a flyer mission all the way up to 2017 actually 1965 mariner 2015 you have New Horizons, right, visiting Pluto. And so for NASA, that was the bookending of their primary exploration of the solar system. And then once you've done it once, then the question is, well, where are we going to go back to? Right. Right? And, you know, of course, we've been to Mars a great many times, I guess for two reasons. One, unfortunately, I have to quote Donald Rumsfeld for this. It's doable. (laughs) Right. And and secondly... It's got ground and sunlight. Yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to get to, relatively speaking, easy to land on, relatively speaking, and easy to operate on. And so we can actually do the science there. What science is there? Well, we've realized that, you know, although the surface appears to be dead, right, lifeless, there are niches, there are amazing places. So on Mars, the thing that really gets me going, there's two things. One is, they, well, they have a really wonderful, boring name, recurring slope linear. Yes, Every spring on the, on the slopes of Mars facing the sun, we see dark streaks coming from cliff sides and down into gullies. And we think that salty water happening every Martian spring and every Martian autumn, they freeze up and they disappear again. So there you've got a regular supply of water, right? Who knows what's going on there? At the moment, getting there is not doable because you're talking about 55 degrees squeeze. It's not good road to rain. Right. The other thing I think is cool is some great science is being done on planet Earth on subglacial lakes in Antarctica, right? Basically, a very cold environment, but the pressure of ice means that at the bottom of these ice sheets, you can get liquid water, right? And we've, we've drilled down there. There are living things in them. We're still actually characterizing the, um, the habitats. But using the same radar techniques, we can see those liquid water levels in the ice caps of Mars, yeah, yeah, that's that's an interesting. Actually, I haven't talked to anybody about that idea. That I mean, all of the the thinking goes on. Let's go to Europa. Let's go to Enceladus. Let's, oh, let's yeah. send some nuclear submarine down through a hundred kilometers of ice to try and sample the the uh, the under ice ocean. But but if you get enough of that pressure on the ice to form a liquid water, you only have to go down a mere kilometer or two. In the yeah, ice cap, yeah, yeah, to be able to sample the um, to sample uh, what is possibly a liquid water environment, and if there's any place that there's going to be life on Mars, that's going to be it's going to be down there. Uh, that's absolutely fascinating. How how do you feel? You know. It, with, I mean, obviously the search for, for life here in the solar system is, is one thing, but there's a lot of really great instruments and telescopes coming online. James Webb is going to be participating in this, some of the ground-based telescopes. Scientists are now starting to think about biosignatures. What are the, the, the kinds of evidence that you could see in the atmosphere of another world to say, okay, there's life there? Um, how are you feeling about the state of that I guess, you know, we're sort of in the preparation for being able to start making those discoveries. 
You know, I, when, when I teach my students about this and write about it, we're, we're really on the, at the beginning of the age of exoplanet atmospheric spectroscopy. We're going to start doing the measurements of these exoplanets that we will need to do to observe biosignatures. My sense, though, is what we are going to learn about for, a, I don't know, the first 10 systems observed, 500, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000, we are going to learn about exoplanet atmospheres. Yeah. Because they are, remember what we said, it's discovery-driven observational science. Nature is going to surprise us. Nature is going to do things with these atmospheres we did not think possible, and possibly many of them will not involve life, right? But then I teach people, once you've learned about the, the range of properties, then you can spot the needles yeah. in the haystack, yeah. right? And so I know, now you have to, if you're applying for money, you have to say, we're going to look for biosignatures of oxygen and methane, and this is going to tell us there's life there. Quite right. Okay, that's, that's, how you, that's how you get your money, right? But then how do you do the science? You go back to the boring groundwork, right? Yeah. I often give people the analogy of the biology experiments on the Viking Mars yes. right? NASA threw the ball long. They put on an all-singing, all-dancing biology package to look for life in the top few centimeters of soil, right? And they weren't able to fully interpret the result because they didn't know what the overall soil chemistry was. And they realized that once they'd gone there and taken those measurements. And so then they actually did a very sensible thing. They took a step back and they said, okay, let's start observing the environment and learn what's going on there. And that's so I, I, I'm very excited about you know, exoplanet atmosphere spectroscopy. But I'm also realistic that, and also learning about exoplanet atmospheres, life or not, it's going to be amazing, yeah, right? Yeah. You want science fiction? You're going to get amazing science facts, right? Yeah. And it, but then once we've looked at, I don't know how many, five, ten thousand, yeah, you're right. Then we're going to see the needles in the haystack, and those are going to be the ones where somebody's going to say, something's not right there. I can't make that atmosphere happen, right? But I always tell you know those I work with as well. As an astrobiologist, life has to be the explanation of last resort. Yes, it's right, because it can always be explained by aliens. Yes, everything can be done by aliens. Right. But you've got to start with what can nature do with just the building blocks we know are there. Yeah. Nature does very interesting things. Yeah. Right? Now, of course, it's very different in the media because the media, bless them, wants life to be the explanation of first resort. Right, and that has not changed. Right, I show my students um, slides. I show them the front page of newspapers from the early part of the twentieth century, so early nineteen hundreds, where one newspaper has a great vegetable eye on Mars, like the eye of Sauron. Right, and this is how the life has had to grow to keep an eye on all of the canals that Percival Lowell saw on the surface. Right, and newspapers <laughs> even take the names of astronomers and make up completely fake stories assigned to them. Yes. Right. And so I also say there is nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's a great I mean, it's it's like giving people that patience. I mean, there are these amazing new missions that are coming, like even just the uh, the Keops mission that was that just did first light. Its only job is to characterize exoplanets, figure out all the ones that are known, and figure out their radiuses and their orbits. And that yes. alone is incredibly useful. And then you're going to get these follow-on missions like Ariel, which will try to start actually detecting the atmospheres and giving and getting some of this additional information. And you and suddenly, as you said, you know you know the chemical characteristics of hundreds, thousands of planets. That alone would be a boon to science. There are deep, there are answers to questions that scientists have been wanting to know for for a hundred years, and that suddenly mm. now they're going to get these answers. And 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 the icing on this cake is the possibility that one of those atmospheres is going to be weird, and yeah. it could, and then there could be a whole follow up mission. I, you know, I mentioned I did a recent show, and I said, you know, we may find some really interesting atmosphere on some planet, and then there's a whole mission. That's only job is to watch that planet twenty four seven, slowly teasing out more and more details about it. And, and and now you have astrobiologists, and eventually you have, you know, people who are proxima centibiologists whose yeah. only job, you know, they've gone to school and they've got their doctorate just in 
in studying the atmosphere of Proxima Centauri and no. so on and so on. It is a journey. We are on it. And uh, I can't wait to see and what it's a fun one. next. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, the, one thing, the one thing you did ask me about, I just wanted to pop in. So, yeah, you're right. There's so many cool things going on in the solar system. You know, my own personal favorite is Enceladus, right? But I just wanted to also say, you know, I don't know what this exploration will find, but it's really entering a very cool stage, right? To me, one of the best examples of that is going to be NASA's now going to start flying drones on these planets. Yes. Right? So Mars 2020 is going to test a drone on the surface of Mars, which is very low-density atmosphere, but not that low a temperature. But what's amazing is they're going to try and fly a drone on Titan, right? So a much thicker atmosphere, a little bit thicker than our atmosphere, but way colder, right? Very different engineering challenges. But how amazing is that going to be, to look at a time-lapse movie of a drone flying over the Titan? Stuff, you know, because we grew up seeing amazing space exploration, and yet there are still people out there whose imaginations are not exhausted, right? There's still more to come. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's funny. Whenever I talk to people, they always feel like they missed all the big stuff. But I, And then I will rattle off 30 missions in development in various stages or of flight and development. And they're like, okay, okay, okay. Yep. It's, it's still exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so John, if people want to uh, follow on what you're working on, uh, where can they go and see what you're doing? And if they want to take uh, your class. Oh, right. Well, the class is an easy one. So that's um, every fall in university, Victoria astronomy 201, the search for life in the universe just need to be second year standing. Okay. And um, I guess that I'm not, a big blogger or this kind of thing. Essentially, what my my next thing is, uh, I guess I, I can be I can be crude and vulgar. So here's book Please number do, one. yeah. A little to right. the side. I can't even, the camera can't see it. There you go. So book number one is what is astrobiology, right? All these worlds are yours, the search for, um, the scientific search for alien life, okay? As we were talking earlier, book two is going to be what does an astrobiologist do? Perfect. So that's where I'm really going to tell people the stories about, you know, when the alarm goes off at 6 a.m., what's an astrobiologist doing? Well, they're actually on a research ship in the eastern Pacific or they're examining fossils in Western Australia, these kinds of environments. And so that's actually the next year. So um, starting in July, I've got this wonderful event in the life of a professor I'm on sabbatical, which means most people actually I talk to, they think, so you're going to just sit in your office and smoke a pipe for a year? No, all of it. Um, so essentially, I'll be sat here writing that book, encapsulating the experiences I've had over, really, I guess, since I finished the first book, so 2016 to 2020, I'll be writing about all of those adventures I've been had doing astrobiology. The other thing is if you're watching this and you're on Vancouver Island, right, come down to um, Victoria, get involved with the Café Scientifique. This is a, a public science uh, talk series I host that's at a local jazz bar, Herman's Jazz Bar, and the wonderful thing is we have all these great speakers, but no slides, right? So it's all good and old school. You just have to entertain the conversation. So Fantastic. Uh, there's some good connections out there. All right, I'll, I will, since this is on my island, I'll come down and, uh, and hang yeah. out and, uh, and do, uh, do an edit. It sounds great. And, of course, when my daughter uh, goes into uh, to UVic, I'll, I'll encourage her to take the, to take the class. Sounds great. Yeah. All right, uh, John, again, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. If you do find aliens, please let us know. You'll be the first. All right. Thank you. See you later. Take care. You are listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the three. 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye. <laughs>